Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 361 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find writing courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. And I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of The Firestar, a Maven and Reeve mystery. How are you, Al? Well, that's a very big question this week. It's been quite a busy week. Um, I'm pretty good. So um, I heard back, you might remember a couple of weeks ago, I had submitted the manuscript for Maven and Reeve 2 to my publisher. And then I was waiting just to hear that that was all fine. And uh, I heard back this week that uh, they loved it. So yay. Yay. Hooray. Hooray. Such a relief, I can't tell you. Um, every <laughs> single time. I know, you know, you would think it would get easier, but it does not get easier, people. Um, so I was very, very relieved. Um, uh, they're very excited and uh, it's going ahead. I'm just um, still trying to come up with a title. Like it's a funny thing. Everybody always say, um, when I go to school talks, they always say to me, you know, how do you come up with the titles for your book? Um, do you know, do you have it right from the start? Mm. I was like, no, not necessarily. Like sometimes, yes, it, it just sort of comes to you very early on and other times no so mm. I'm still kind of working through what that what that one's actually going to be called so as are soon you as- gonna do are you gonna do like you know how it's the fire star so you're gonna do blur 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 you know what I mean because titles seem to do that when they are related I, I think it will probably blur 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 in some way mm. um yeah I, I think so. Yeah, I think it will be blur, 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 a Maven and Reeve mystery. Maybe we'll just call it that, blur, 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 yeah. blur, 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 blur. Um, mm. But, no, I think it's um, that's probably how it will go, I, I think, mm. but I'm not exactly sure yet. You, you do want to have some uniformity with the yes. with the feel of the series. Yeah. Um, so we'll just see uh, how we go. So I'm trying to think of that. Um, of course, I had a fantastic – I don't know if anybody tuned into this, but um, – in your kids next read on Wednesday night, we had I did a, a fabulous event with Jacqueline Harvey, who is yes. uh, one of Australia's most popular uh, writers of mm. you know junior middle grade fiction, uh, junior and middle grade fiction. Uh, we were talking about her latest book, which is book six in the Kenzie and Max series, mm. but she has sold like more than a million books in Australia, like well over a million wow. books in Australia across. Uh, several series. Her Alice Miranda series, which was her first series, um, book twenty of that of that series is coming out. Um, she's thinking it will probably be the last one. Is coming out. I think she said next year or twenty twenty two. So she's um, and in the meantime, she's then also started another series called Clementine Rose, which is slightly younger. She now mm. has Kenzie and Max, which is at six books, which she has just signed for books uh, nine and ten. So she's working on seven and eight. She's signed for books nine and ten. She has. She told us uh, in in breaking news on mm. Wednesday night that she's just signed for a another a new series, a four book series, and she also has two picture books coming out in the next couple of years as well. So she is absolutely the busiest person ever um, yeah. and just phenomenal. Like we had a great old chat and she's a very much a – she's a great um, – you know, she's a great advocate for um, making sure that kids read books across, you know, different areas like there's a there's a real thing that we come across I think because we're female authors we come across this thing of what she does in particular because a lot of her characters her protagonists are girls whereas mine are kind of boys and Mm. girls um so she will often find that uh she won't be invited to boys schools because as as an author speaker she won't be invited because she you know there's this perception that her books are books for girls and 
um, the the both of us are, are very much like advocates for the fact that um, you know you don't know what book is going to capture a kid's attention and yeah. it's really important. She's a terrific speaker. Like I've seen her, she came to the Shawhaven Readers and Writers Festival yes. last year. She is a terrific and engaging speaker. She's very funny. Um, you know, and I just think I, I just I don't really understand this this thing that um, you know, like that it because it has a girl as the main character that mm. boys won't read it. Now, um, my son Book Boy wrote a piece for Megan Daly, um, who of course co-hosts the um, Your Kids Next Read group with me, wrote mm-hmm. a book uh, not last year, the year before, called Raising Readers. And Book Boy wrote it has a piece published in that book about the fact that one of his greatest joys as a reader, um, at that time he was probably like, I don't know, 14 or 15, was just that we have such a huge diversity of different kinds of books in the house and there's never been a question that if it's on the shelf you can read it. And so he has read, you know, a whole range of different books that um, teachers are often surprised that he has read. Um, Mm. And part of that is just, you know, as he said, like, whether it's, you know, books for girls, books for boys, you know, own voices, whatever kind of book it is, if it's a good book, it's a good book. And, you know, if if it's a good book, it's going to engage a reader. And I think it's really important that um, that we recognise that as adults and not put limitations on what we give our kids to read. And I think Absolutely. that because there is a certain bias about it, um, you know, across a range of different areas. So we had a good old chat about that in the group. I'm going to put the YouTube link to the to the talk in the show notes. You'll find it at. Oh, um, great. On the Children's Books Daily, that's Megan Daly's uh, YouTube channel, we have uh, a link uh, on hers um, and I'll put it in the show notes because I think it's really worth watching. I mean, she is very, very good at what she does and she has a lot to say. So if you are writing for children or have any aspirations in that area, uh, it's really worth watching watching that uh, conversation that we had. Um, so I've been doing that. And the other great thing is that um, – the reviews for the Firestar uh, are still coming in and uh, it was on the Reading Time blog uh, this week, which is the CBCA, the Children's Book Council of Australia, um, has done a review and it's a really great review. So it's just, uh, it's you know, when a review like that comes in, it's just so gratifying. I was so excited about it. So I'll put Mm. the link to the show notes um, in that as well. So, yes, it's been, that's the kind of week. What about you, Val? What have you been doing? Let me rave on about myself for an hour. Yes. What have I been doing? I am preparing because after this, I'm about to jump on a webinar uh, or a corporate group on storytelling for business. Oh, cool. And like a Zoom, or it's not Zoom, it's going to be a webinar jam, but anyway, um, for about 30 people. So that's going to be interesting. I did my group of 60 people on content writing the other day and I was so exhausted by the end. Oh, I can't even imagine. I just cracked open a bottle of wine. <laughs> it is something about, I just find, like, I find that there's something about the Zoom session that is just even more exhausting than oh, wow. 60 people in a room. Do you feel that? I think, you. I don't know, it's like you always have to be on. It must be exhausting for the people who are, like, on the Today Show and stuff because it's because you feel like you have a camera on you the whole time and that you have to be always perky and smiling and all of those things. I know. It's I like know. I was watching the I was watching the video of um of the, the Your Kids Next Read event with Jackie and I was watching my face and because mm. of course when you're watching it yourself you're like you can zone in and I can see what the moments where I suddenly realize that I'm 
zoning out or something and, and I'm back, you know, and there's like a little yeah, – and, right. and I've, re- I've realised that maybe I've got, you know, resting bitch face and I actually just need to <laughs> smile a bit more or it's quite it, – it's – I do feel it's very – you really have to be aware of what your face is doing all the time, I think, yes. and I, I find that really, really tiring. Yes, that is so true. Um, yeah, so anyway, I have been doing uh, that, bits of training and, oh, gosh, writing, um, mentoring, um, you know. That's the usual vow stuff. How's the yes. cat hair crafting going? I no, have to say well, uh, that the yeah, response it's... to that was one of my favourite things ever <laughs> that we've it's ever done in going. this group. <laughs> I just like, I, I, I honestly, I Every time I think about it, it just makes me smile. I should think about that when I'm doing my zooms because yes. I would just, I would constantly have an expression of glee on my face, wouldn't I? It would just be like, <laughs> yes. Well, that is not a priority at the moment because I'm still in the stage of collecting the cat hair, and I'm not, you know, um, making it. Because how's the cello going? Oh well, I've moved on from Twinkle Twinkle, <gasps> so <laughs> what have you I moved can on now to? moved. I can do Happy Birthday. Oh, wow. yes! Twinkle, twinkle, happy birthday, and advance Australia Fair. There, that's my repertoire currently. You've got three songs. You must be like a star pupil. That's yeah, amazing. but I'm not good at them. No, but most people would still be just. Too, I would still be at the. This is an A. This is a C. This is an F. I would still be at that stage. I remember when Bookboy and I went to do guitar lessons. So he was about six, and for about. Um, because he was, you know, he's a pretty bright kid and I just thought I had read somewhere that, you know, this was a good thing for bright kids to do because this right, is the yeah. kind of parent I am. So, um, mm. and I also knew that he was he was kind of a little bit shy and stuff. So I said that we would, I said, why don't we go together? Let's go and learn to play the guitar together. Oh. This is the kind of devoted parent I am, put myself through this. Although actually, to be fair, I have always wanted to learn to play the guitar. Oh. So, because um, I wanted to be able to, because, you know, I like to sing and I, yes. I thought, oh, well, at least I'll be able to strum along as I sing Happy Birthday yes. or whatever. So we go along, he's like six, and we go along and we have this guitar teacher and she's like, her name was um, Belle and she was 17. She's a beautiful girl. She's a daughter mm-hmm. of a friend of ours. And we go along and like we're working through the book and, and you know, I knew all the notes and I did the practicing, but I could never, ever kind of work out how to make it all. I said, but what, now that I know all the notes, what do I do? And she said, we well, yeah. start playing songs, mm-hmm. but how do I know the strum patterns? And in the meantime, while mm-hmm. I'm having these conversations with her, he's teaching himself the Beatles songbook. Like this oh my was, God. <laughs> and then mm. so, and then he decided at seven that he he'd had enough of that and he would go and play the, the piano, which he then did for like right. six years. And um, and then one day he was about eleven and he picked up the guitar again and he literally like picked up the guitar, having not looked at it for however many years, and by the end of the day. You know, he had, I think when he was like six, he had learned, he taught himself how to play eight days a week or something, you know, one of those oh four God. chord oh, jammers. Oh, to be a kid again. Well, I actually, know. I think your kid's a bit special. Like he's. Oh, that, he's yeah. Really look, honestly. Yeah. So by musically. the end of the, by the end of the first day that he decided to pick up this guitar again, he was in the backyard playing and singing Paperback Writer. And oh my God. I know. And we were just, and, and, um, and my husband goes to me, so. How's your guitar playing coming along? <laughs> Just like I can't even remember where the G string is anymore. <laughs> oh my god, that's amazing! Well, I'm still on Twinkle Twinkle, but hey, baby steps. <laughs> well, let me know when you get to Paperback Writer. Yeah, I'm okay. Here. On cello, maybe, maybe you and Bookboy can jam together. Yeah, on cello. Um, 
All right, we want to give a big shout out to Joanne Van R from Australia who left us a review on this about this podcast and um, entitled My Muse. And Joanne said, I listen to Al and Val every morning on my walks. I love hearing what these gals are up to each week. Sorry, Val, I'm team chocolate. I laugh at Al's reaction to Val's word of the week and was thrilled to hear my name mentioned a couple of months ago after I sent in the word uxorious. I remember that one. Uh The interviews are inspiring and the top three tips from each author are worth noting down. Thank you for your inspiration. Wow, thanks, Joanne Van Arl. Thank you. That's awesome. Really appreciate that. And um, if you have, if anyone else has 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app, we'd really be grateful because it helps us in the rankings and it keeps us motivated too, <laughs> doesn't it, does. it Al? It do- no, it really does. Like it's, it's always lovely to know that you're out there and yeah. that, you know, that we're, that we, that we're useful. It helps. It really does. Mm, it does. All right, let's move on to the world of writing and publishing. Al, you have uh, some links for us. I do. So the first one I have is from Medium, um, yeah. and it's a, a page on Medium called The Book Mechanic. And it's a post that uh, was written by, and uh, it's Joanna, and I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce the last name, but I think it's a massive or Masayuska. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she has written a post called Things Aspiring Writers Often Don't Know About Traditional Publishing and How mm-hmm. Knowing Them Helps to Manage Your Expectations. And I just thought it was a very, again, come back to that word, useful post because it's quite a blunt and honest post. And it's something that I, you know, we see a lot uh, through various people that we know, but I have also experienced, you know, over time um, as someone who, you know, was, was writing manuscripts and wanting to be published and then getting published and all of those different things. And, um, you know, it, as as Joanna points out, a traditional publishing deal often seems like a holy grail for authors um, and you get that sort of motivation to, to, to write by dreaming about seeing your book in bookstores and stuff like that. Um, but you also need to manage your expectations a little bit because sometimes mm. the dream doesn't always match the reality and you can, you know, be derailed a little bit by it um, if you know, through disappointment, if things don't necessarily turn out how you expected them to. Um, So one of the things, first thing she points out is that there is actually no guarantee you'll find representation like an agent or a publisher for your project. And it's got nothing nothing necessarily to do with how great your project might be. You could write an excellent book um, and it may not find an agent or a publisher simply because traditional publishing is a business. So, you know, they have to stay on top of trends. They have to work within limited budgets. They have limited publishing slots. And circumstances can mean that your book may not fit at the moment or it may not fit, you know, for whatever reason because someone Mm. else has got a book that's similar because, you know, that the publishing slots are all filled up for that year for whatever reason. Um, And I think it's really worth recognizing that fact that it's not necessarily you it's not necessarily your project it may yeah. just be that the publishing climate at the time is not quite right for that particular projects um, and particularly with debut authors because 
you know, as as Joanna points out, publishers have, you know, fewer slots for debut authors because they have to also, like, fit in all the established authors that they already have. They have to – that there's a lot of um, additional kind of push that needs to go behind a debut author to put them out in the market. So there's only a limited marketing budget for certain things. Um, so there's, there's a whole range of reasons why a particular project may not get picked up at a particular time, um, and it's always worth – um, recognizing that, but it's also worth recognizing that um, that's why, why we always talk about the fact that you should be working, like get that project finished and start submitting, but work on other things as well, because mm. it's it's a really important thing that you always have something else to be distracting yourself with. Um, and the other thing that I think is quite important is that an agent's representation or publishing contract doesn't guarantee you a career. It's not like, and I think that this is something that does surprise people, you know, you jump over it, that's a massive hurdle and it's a huge hoop to jump through and you jump through that hoop and then what you recognise once you get to the other side of that is that you have to do it again. You have to do it again. Um, And so, you know, once you've successfully sold a manuscript, um, you might get it, you might get agent representation for it, but it may not actually get to a deal, even though, Mm. you know, the agent believes in it, you believe in it, or you might get published, but, you know, that that doesn't necessarily mean that the publisher is going to accept every single thing that you ever write ever again, simply Mm. because they accepted the first thing that you wrote. So you have to keep working on your craft. You have to keep getting better. You have to keep coming up with ideas and you have to keep consolidating the stuff that you've already done. I think. And making sales. And making sales, that's what I mean, yeah. So mm. it's it's important to recognise that there's, like getting the getting the deal is actually just the first step and then it's like there's yeah. another whole road on the other side of that. Yeah, yeah. I think a really um, good point that's in this post is being traditionally published doesn't mean you don't have to market your books. Yeah. Now, until you become J.K. Rowling and you really don't have to try anymore, marketing yeah. that is, <clears throat> Yeah. Uh, you do have to market your books. Some people think that it's only indie publishers who have to spend a lot of time marketing, but traditional publishers, while they offer some level of marketing support, they really are relying on you, especially if you're new. Like I said, different if you're JK Rowling, but especially if you're, if you're new, they're really relying on you to do a lot of the marketing yourself as well if you want to succeed and make more sales and therefore they want to publish you again, right? So it is um very important that you factor that in and don't assume that you can just write the book and that's the end of your participation kind of thing. No, yeah. and if you if you don't factor that in and and we have seen this over and over again, if you don't factor that in and you don't work on creating yourself a community um very early on and you don't work on sort of like bringing those people in around you and creating that platform and thinking of different ways that you can actually promote your own book, it, what you find yourself is that like after the sort of X number of weeks that you get from your traditional publisher where you will have a publicist who will help you to line up interviews and do things, it's up to you to continue the conversation. And if yeah. you haven't kind of like created that community or started to do that sort of work early, there's no one for you to talk to. And mm. I see a lot of authors then go, well, what do I do now? What do I do now? What do I do now? And I think um, the sooner you start to think about what you need to do um, to continue a conversation um, or start and continue a conversation, um, the better it's going to be for you because there's no – like shouting into a void is, is a very difficult thing to have to do all the time. Um, yeah. So, you know, make sure there's someone to hear what you have to say. Yeah, definitely. 
All right, let's move on to our next link, which is <clears throat> eight signs you'd be a great freelance and content writer because there are a huge number of people who have embraced the world of freelance and so many of them have done our course, Freelance Writing Stage 1. Um, and apart from being able to write for publications that we all know and love, whether, you know, the ones that are very familiar to us, whether that's the Sydney Morning Herald or Good Weekend or Mind Food or Sunday Life or whatever, um, there's also a whole world of content writing that has exploded because people, when companies and organizations have understood that they are now publishers and they are now publishing articles and blog posts and stories that are relevant to their particular audience. So yeah, huge world of content and freelance writing out there. So some of the things in this post, eight of the eight signs you'd be a great freelance and content writer um, are include that you can adapt your copy to various house styles because here's the thing when you're a freelance and content writer typically and unlike when you're writing fiction where you're really encouraged to find your own voice and you know to really identify your own distinctive style when you're writing fiction it's very important to have a skill as a freelance and content writer to be able to adapt to the style of the publication that you're writing for. Yeah. Now, you and I know that because we come, came from that world and it is yeah. so important that if you're writing for, um, uh, you know, a, like we wrote for Clio for many years and it was a very specific voice, a very specific style. But when we both went freelance and then we started writing for finance publications, it's a completely yeah. different style and it is so important to be able to adapt. And sometimes people who are used to writing fiction or well, only writing fiction and don't and, and haven't had much experience in freelance or content writing, um, they find it hard to adapt because they feel they've spent so long developing their own style that it's uh, it's really at odds for them to to change their style, but it is a vital skill if you're looking at um, freelance and, and content writing. Another important skill to have is um, to manage your time well because with freelance and content writing, you've got way shorter deadlines than when you're writing a book. Oh, yeah. yeah. Way shorter. And and a deadline for a publication such as The Australian or The Stimulant Herald is a real deadline. You can't mm. ring up and say... Oh, Can sorry. I have an extra week? <laughs> <laughs> like the paper gets to go to the printer and go yeah, to They press. don't tend to like it much, do they? <laughs> no. So it's very important um, to do that. Now, what I have found really interesting, and I get this from, um, I hear this also from other journalists who then write books. Now, these journalists are so used to working to deadline and like I, I was so used to working to a deadline that when they go into the world of publishing where they're writing books, um, they're working to a deadline and then a couple of weeks before the deadline, their publisher rings up and says, oh, would you like a bit more time? And they freak and I, out and they go, no. No, I, I've, I've just been the same and like I, I'm still, I am still like that and if you give me a deadline like for Maven and Reef too, for example, mm. we had the initial conversation about what when that book would be due. And um, originally, um, my publisher wanted it sort of a bit earlier, um, but it was she she suggested a date, forgetting that uh, the Firestar was coming out. And I said to her, "Look, I can probably do that." And you know, I would have killed myself to do that because that's how I work, right? Because I go to a deadline. I said, "I can probably do that," but I've got 
three weeks of of uh, promoting Maven and Re, uh, promoting the Firestar in the middle of that, mm. which is probably going to make it a little bit more difficult for me. And she like she was like, oh, I totally forgot. No, no, you can't possibly do that. And then she gave me extra time, and I, you know, I sent that manuscript in on that day. I yeah. had, you know, I and I had it was quite a short deadline that I had to get it done, um, and I had written it and I had edited it once before I got it into her for that day, and I mm. sent it in on that day, and she nearly fell over. She was like. Yeah. You know, yeah. because and I've always been like that. Like, and they'll say to me, "How long? Do, you know, look, we, we can give you an extra two months to edit that book, and please don't, because yeah, if you give me an exactly. extra two months, I'm exactly. going to take an extra two months, and it's just going to take forever." Yeah, yeah. Another really good point in this is you can take feedback well, but that's actually a bit gentle. Oh, that's it's really actually important. you can take slashing and burning well, because yeah. unlike fiction, where fiction, you know, the editor suggests stuff and then it's up to you to change. When it comes to freelance and content writing. They just slash and burn. Yeah. <laughs> and you yeah. need to be able to accept that. Well, typically, most of the time, they slash and burn if they need to. And usually that's because of space constraints or because you've added some fat that really doesn't need to be there and you've repeated yourself. Um, they will you always I... take the jokes out. Oh, yeah. That's, yes, that's I so true. They so will true. always take the jokes out. If they've got a cut, they'll take your jokes so out. So true. Because um, you and I both know somebody who used to just lose her brain, as in go nuts, when anything yeah. of hers got slashed or burned or changed. Yeah. And it was like, oh my God, get over it. Like they really couldn't okay. fit it in. Just, you know, yeah. there was only yeah. so much space. Um, so you have to be up for that as well and not get upset. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's a really good post. It's on the Australian Writer Centre blog. Have a look because maybe you fit some of the other eight signs uh, that you'd be a great freelance and content writer. We'll put the link in the show notes, which, of course, you can find at soyouwannabearwriter.com.au. Now, what else is happening, Al? You've got something to do with reading time. No, I already said that. That was about oh, my review. that's already yeah. – oh, I'm looking at the We've URL already, and I'm getting confused. Yeah, she's, look, she's checking out. She's, she's actually following the program this I week and checking for notes, in the which right is very order. unusual. Yes, yes, bad me. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on then to we have a new course which is launching this week, which is called Ooh. Fiction Essentials Structure. It's ah. perfect for any fiction writer keen to create a stronger, more satisfying story for their readers. Now, many writers know what to aim for with their structure, but aren't confident on how to achieve it. So this practical course removes the guesswork. So it literally lays out the exact steps that you can follow, things to fill in, templates, great handouts, so that you can build a coherent structure into your story and have and control your narrative tension and pace. It's just awesome. It's such a valuable resource if you're just starting your novel, as well as a vital course for writers who need to do a structural edit on your own manuscript. So make sure you register your interest ASAP, or if you're listening to this podcast after it already goes live, you'll still love it. Uh, if you do register your interest ASAP at writercenter.com.au slash structure, you will receive a special launch discount as soon as the course is available, which will only be available upon launch. So go to writercenter.com.au slash structure. All right, our competition this week. We have three copies of Life After Truth by Sarah Edwin Dovey, who is a fantastic writer. Um, okay, so Life After Truth 
Here's a little bit about it. 15 years after graduating from Harvard, five close friends on the cusp of middle age are still pursuing an elusive happiness. Jules is changing in mysterious ways, but won't share what is haunting her. Mariam and Rowan, who married young, are struggling with the demands of family life. Eloise is troubled by her younger wife's radical politics, and Jomo has been carrying an engagement ring around for months, unsure whether his girlfriend is the one. The soul-searching begins in earnest at their much-anticipated college reunion weekend on the Harvard campus, when the most infamous member of the class, Frederick, senior advisor and son of the recently elected and loathed US president, turns up dead. Old friends often think they know everything about one another, but time has a way of making us strangers to those we love and to ourselves. Ooh. Cracker. All right. Entries close on the 16th of November. Just go to writerscentercomau slash win in order to enter and uh, follow the prompts. If you are listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry. If you go to writercenter.com.au slash win, there will be some other fantastic competition for you to enter. So now, Al, we're going to move on because are you ready for the word of the week? I'm so ready, Val. Excellent. Solipsism. Mm. Do you know it? I do. Oh. Sorry. Okay. All right. So I was watching, well, I only watched one episode so far of um, the new Netflix drama, Brave New World. I'm kind of resisting it because I watched it when I was a kid, you know, the old version, and Mm. was so terrified that Mm. I couldn't continue. I still have images that are seared into my brain from Mm. that original version. So I tried it out. I've only done one episode, but they used the word solipsism. Now, according to the Macquarie Dictionary, solipsism refers to extreme self-centeredness or self-regard. And in Brave New World, one of the characters accuses another of solipsism, implying that she is selfish and she's following her own wants. Mm. So there, solipsism. Mm-hmm. I had to. I read Brave New World again. Oh. No, uh, when did I? Was it last? No, two years ago. Because I, I had a young friend who was doing it. Well, it's it's been an HSC text for quite a while at at right. um, one of the local high schools, and so I read it because um, she wanted to discuss it with me. And um, oh, I just I really disliked it. Yeah, yeah. I just really disliked it. I mean, I'm. It's a. It's a very very clever and well-written book but it just oh. was not what I needed at that no. point and I c- cannot imagine wanting to watch it this year no <laughs> I just no can't. so true anyway solipsism that was the word of the week this podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers Centre and our course crime and thriller writing In this five-week online course, you'll discover how to write a gripping page-turner, the different types of crime and thriller fiction, the ingredients every good story needs, how to manage characters, pace, suspense and climax, and publishing options and much more. And you'll get feedback on your writing from your tutor. Let's hear from Shankari Chandran. When I first decided to do a course at the AWC, I had been writing for a few years. I had taken time out of my career as a lawyer to have our fourth child 
and life was chaotic but I had always wanted to write and so I thought I would give it a go in between baby feeds and school runs and so on. I have just published The Barrier with Pan Macmillan Australia and I'm loving it. For many years being published felt like an impossible dream, like something that happened to other people. When I heard that I was going to be published, I was at Officeworks because I find buying stationery really therapeutic and I put down my stationery and cried. The AWC's course has had a huge impact on my writing. It's changed my understanding of the thriller genre and my approach to writing it. Because of the clarity the course gave me, I feel far more confident doing it. I feel incredibly fortunate that my books have been published now. I love writing. It's energizing and meditative for me. I feel really committed to the stories I'm telling and I hope to keep doing it. Look, I would absolutely recommend the courses at the AWC uh, to friends, aspiring authors, anyone. I would say do a course, do lots of courses, and do them earlier rather than later on your writing path. It's worth it. To find out more, go to writercentercomau slash crime. All right, let's move on to our writer in residence this week. We have Chris Hammer. It was such a joy to chat to Chris and his book, his latest book, Trust, is everywhere. I'm seeing it everywhere in Pride of Place and all of the bookshops. Chris Hammer was a journalist for many, many years. Um, his debut novel was Scrublands and then he followed that up with Silver and now here we have Trust, which is an awesome read here is Chris Hammer. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. Fantastic to be with you. Your book, Trust, it's going to go gangbusters. In case there are some readers who haven't got their hands on a copy yet, can you just tell us what it's about? Okay, so it's a follow-up book, not a sequel, strictly speaking, uh, to my previous book, Scrublands and Silver. Um which is another way of saying you can absolutely read it as a standalone and, yes. you know, if you like it, go back and read the other two. It does feature the same protagonist, Martin Scarsden, the rather damaged uh, journalist, and his partner, Mandalay, or Mandy Blonde. Uh, the difference with this book, I guess, one of the main uh, differences as far as style goes is the previous books are told very much from Martin's point of view, mm. not in the first person, but third person. But you can see very much the world from his point of view. He's in every scene. You can read what he's thinking, but only have his impressions of, uh, of what others are thinking. This book is different in that you get to see inside Mandy's head. The chapters alternate, one from Martin, one from Mandy, uh, as they are beset uh, by a wave of criminality that neither of them sees coming. And maybe you can just uh, give reader, uh, give listeners a bit of a hint to the premise. Okay, so without trying to give too much away, uh, mm. Martin and Mandy are living a very peaceful life up in Port Silver where they, they finish up at the end of uh, my previous book, Silver, and then suddenly a whole lot of stuff happens all at once. Mm. Mandy is abducted. Martin finds her gone but an unconscious policeman on the floor of their home. The next thing he knows is the police are investigating and they're very interested in what happened to an undercover policeman 
who died, it now transpires, five years ago. Um, his body has just been found and he used to be engaged to Mandalay Blonde. So that happens very rapidly at the start of the book. Martin decides for various reasons that she's being held somewhere in Sydney, that Sydney is the, is the core of this. So whereas the previous two books, Scrublands, were set out in western New South Wales in a drought, uh, Silver's set in the north coast of New South Wales, but this is a book set in the city and it's set there for a reason because the book is all about power and elites and corruption and conspiracies. So we're better to set a book like that than, than in <laughs> Sydney. Yes. Now, I do want to emphasise to listeners that it absolutely does read as a standalone book, and it really does. I know that some authors say that the, that they read as standalone <laughs> books, but they actually don't. But this really does. So you don't have to have read the previous two to enjoy this one. But, of course, you know, if you read this and enjoy it, do go back and, and um, read the previous two. So how did this idea form? You obviously already had your characters, but how did the idea for what was going to happen in the plot come to you? I'm not really too sure. My my <laughs> plots kind of evolve over time. I should take notes. I should have learnt this by now. I should be taking <laughs> notes. So typically they start with a kernel of an idea. Yes. And the idea that this started with was Mandy and her past. What I found very satisfying in the writing of Scrublands and Silver. With Scrublands, I set up to write a crime fiction book, which is all about the plot and who did it or why did it, that sort of thing. But by the time I'd finished it, one of the things I felt uh, most satisfied with was Martin's emotional journey. He, um, you know, by the end of Scrublands, Martin is a different man than he was at the start. So, that led me then to write Silver, which mm. takes us back to Martin's um, old hometown. And we learn in Silver about all the traumatic events that happened to him and his family when he was a child, which has kind of shaped the man he is now. So by the end of Silver, I was thinking, well, what about Mandy? She's become much more important uh, in the books and the plots and Martin's life. We know about her childhood in Riversend. We learn about that in Scrublands. And we know kind of where she is now, but there's a gap there of about 10 years from the time she left the town of Riversend in Scrublands mm -hmm. to the time that, that she reappears there. So this looks into Mandy's past, what drives her, what her emotional journey has been. So you get those, and hence... You know, the need then, I couldn't just have Martin trying to find that out by himself. So mm. we've get, we get the alternating chapters working in trust. So let's talk about those alternating chapters because as you've mentioned, you are doing it from its uh, close focus, third person, limited point of view of Martin and then of yeah. Mandy. And you have already lived with Martin I mean, writing from his point of view for some time. But as you say, yeah. now you've had to switch, and it works really well, uh, switch to writing from Mandy's point of view. And it's interesting because you it's very, obviously it's very credible, it's very um, believable, and, and the observations that Mandy makes are very 
astute, uh, like things, what uh, observations a woman would observe. What did you have to do to get into a woman's headspace, um, particularly one in, you know, traumatic situations in some instances, um, to get that authenticity? It's tricky. I think I think a lot of, of writing and a lot of reading is all about empathy. When we read mm. books, you know, we empathise with characters or at least we, if we can't empathise with them, we try and understand them. Um, so typically in a crime book, you know, that you don't want the, the perpetrator just to be a mad person or an evil person. You want them to have more complex ideas than that. So I think as a writer, you try and get your head into the character so writing a uh, a character like mandy does take more imagination if Mm. if you like so so martin is a more natural fit for me not only um because we're both men but Mm. because martin's background as a journalist and i I was a journalist for many years with Mandy, not just writing a woman's perspective it's writing the perspective of a woman who in some ways is a bit fractured. So, you know, it's not, it's not a simple, straightforward character. And so I think with any writer, when you're writing characters, um, they don't really come to you fully formed. Um, that's point number one. They develop as you write and think about them. But the other thing too is you don't want them to be static. Mm. You want them to, you want them to be changed by the events that they encounter and their actions in, in the book itself. So you need them to change over time. And, you know, it, that's going to be a tricky task um, at any time. So, look, thank you, thank you for, for saying that you think that it, that it works okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the I want to come back to the writing of this book, but I just would want to establish some context here because, as you've mentioned, you have been a journalist for a very long time, uh, and then you wrote your first novel, and you said you wanted it to be a crime novel. First of all, yep. how long have you been wanting to write fiction, and why did you want to write a crime novel? Look, I always, I think, had a hankering to write fiction at some point in the future. I mean, I did literature at school. I did it at uni um, alongside my journalism course. Uh, but, I, of course, all the literature you do at, at school and uni are the great books, okay, and yes. there's a 20-something aspiring to write a great book was kind of beyond me. <laughs> I did write a couple of non-fiction books, um, mm. One was published in 2010, one in 2012. And uh, I've said before, I learned three things from that. One, I really liked writing, not just the the imagining being a writer, but the actual process. Mm. The second thing I found out is I could actually do it because until you have written a book, it seems such, it seems like climbing Everest. But once you've done it, you realise, okay, you can do it. And the third thing I kind of realised that there was no money in it. So I had to get a real job. And so I started writing Scrublands more or less as a hobby. And I was thinking, because I didn't have the time to research a nonfiction book. And I thought, well, here's my chance. I can just write some fiction. I think I'm okay at this. I'll probably get it published, but, you know, nothing more than that. And I thought, well, what sort of book would be kind of fun to write? Oh. And 
um, you know, would be rewarding and that, and that I would maybe have the skills to bring it off as opposed to something, a more ambitious literary project. And my go-to sort of reading books were, uh, I mean, I'm reading a hell of a lot of crime now, but mm. my go-to reading was really contemporary fiction, contemporary Australian fiction, that sort of thing. But I thought, look, there's some aspects of crime that I really like. First, as I, I had read, you know, when I was younger, all those sort of hard-boiled American books, the you know, Dashiell Hammetts and Raymond mm. Chandler's. Mm. And I really like those because they're so atmospheric. The writing's very good. Um, the characters are a bit morally ambiguous. Um, so I thought, look, I might do that. But the other really big influence is when I did journalism, studied it up in Bathurst in the early 1980s, my writing teacher was this, this bloke called Peter Temple, um, oh. who then... <laughs> <laughs> who was teaching, wasn't teaching fiction. He was teaching more like newspaper magazine feature writing. Um, and then later when his books started coming out, because I knew him and I admired him, um, the Jack Irish books, I read them and really liked them. And then, of course, uh, The Broken Shore and Truth came out, which are, are amazing books because they kind of transcend being simple crime fiction books, right? So, mm. that, so that's why I thought, look, I kind of like this. I think it might be fun. Um, I'll just try my hand at this. And I was thinking, you know, at some point in the future, I'll pick up stumps, I'll retire from my day job. And, you know, rather than going playing golf or doing something like that, I can just write the occasional book. So that, <laughs> that was where the idea came from. And, and I think in retrospect, that was very healthy for me. So I wasn't putting too much expectations on me, on myself. Mm -hmm. I wasn't trying to be aspire to too much. I, th I think some authors get clogged down because they're just right. They're trying to write the great book you know, yeah. straight off their best book. Well, I was certainly trying to make the book as good as I as it could be. Mm. And as it then transpires, I was also probably thinking in my back of my mind. This won't be my only book, though. I, I will write more books and this will mm. be a sort of thing that I do and, you know, hope, hopefully I'll be good enough to get them published. But beyond that, I wasn't thinking too much. <laughs> and so when I was, I, <clears throat> I think it, it just helped me when I was writing to think about the manuscript and what was happening in the book and what was happening in the story Mm. rather being, than being sort of clogged up with that sort of self-doubt and concerns and introspection that I mm. think a lot of aspiring writers, you know, can get in their road. And I, and I think probably when I had a crack at writing fiction earlier back in my 20s and 30s, that definitely kind of was a real roadblock for me. So when you decided, okay, I'm going to have a go now and started writing Scrublands and you thought, oh, it'll be quite fun to write crime fiction, was that your first go at fiction since your 20s? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I had, so I wasn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't writing short stories. I, uh, yeah, it was. It was. I, cool. <laughs> I, I got to the stage, there was a time in, uh, I was working... 2008, I guess it was, and I was working for the old Bulletin magazine. I was the chief mm. political correspondent in Canberra and we all got sacked. They closed the magazine down. And the bloke I was sharing the office with, a good friend of mine, Paul Daly, who people would recognise 
um, if not from his book, certainly from he writes columns uh, in The Guardian. Um, he went, we both were both offered jobs at the age and um, I went and he went, you know, I've had enough of daily journalism, I'm going to try and write books. Mm. And I was thinking, oh, so this is possible, is it really, writing books? <laughs> so that's when I tried to write the non-fiction books because, you know, I was a journalist right. yep. and and I could get a I could get a deal with a publisher pretty easily, or so it mm. seemed. You know, writing nonfiction. Mm. Um, it was only after that that I thought, oh, you know, I'll just write books and kind of for myself. I know people. You know, you often hear this advice. You know, you should write for yourself. Mm. Well, I guess I almost inadvertently did that. And so you you say you started writing Scrublands as a bit of a hobby. So tell me about what kind of time you dedicated to that when you were writing it? Did you just do it on weekends or, you know, what, how did it actually uh, end up with the words in the keyboard, on the keyboard? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, everyone's first book is written that way. And many mm. people's second and third books, of course, you know, it's those stolen hours in the evening or, or an hour here on the weekend. Um, my kids are older now, a bit older, so that wasn't taking as much time. Um, so it, it took, I'm not sure, it was three or four or five years, something like that, um, slowly working away on it. And then maybe the last six months, I kind of, I was working, um, Fairfax had rehired me after early giving me a redundancy. So that was nice of them. But I got the wind that this could be coming to an end, um, which it then did. And because I could see it coming to an end, I think I accelerated the writing. And I was also in, the, um, in a rather fortunate position where I could roster myself on starting work at noon and working through to eight or nine at night, which gave me the mornings free to write. So for about six months there, Every morning I, I had, you know, four or five hours to write, which was really fortunate. Mm. So with this book then, can you just give me a little bit of a timeline as to when you decided, okay, I'm ready to start my manuscript now and how long that took you and also, you know, how many hours a day kind of thing did you dedicate to it um, and then, you know, what happened and when did you fi uh, finish your first draft? Well, one of the one of the things I've I'd learned doing the second book, Silver, mm. is that once you've finished one, or as you're finishing one, you should really be starting another one. Yeah. Um, this this helps with it in practical and logistical terms. Mm. I think it also helps so psychologically that rather than sitting around, so I probably would have signed off on trust the final edits you know, six weeks, two months ago, and it's another oh. and it's another few weeks until it's published, right? Yeah. So if I'm sitting around in that time, I'm just getting more and more anxious about how it's going to go. And it's actually a really good downtime to start working on the next one. And, of course, in, in the final stages of editing a book or in the, in the editing process, you might spend a couple of weeks intensely going through a structural edit then you give it to the publishers and you've got a couple of weeks off, right? Then they come back a couple of more weeks or have a long three weeks doing a copy edit, goes back, you've got another few weeks spare, 
then the proof edits come back. So I think in between those times, you should start working on the next one. And but as I say, the after Scrublands came out, my publisher, um, Jane Pofferman, said, look, with crime, it would be really good if we had a follow-up one for next year. Mm. Um, and I went, oh, yeah, what, when are you thinking? And she said, October, which which is a compliment to have a book come out in October yeah, um, because it's it's for a Christmas market. Christmas, yeah. But I was also kind of relieved, so I thought I'd have a bit longer to write. I said, when would you like to see, you know, a, a sort of a draft or a, you know, a polished draft? Mm. And Jane said, I'll start of February would be good. <laughs> and I went, oh, no. And um, so so the last year, yeah. January, February, I just locked myself away uh, down at the coast. I didn't drink any alcohol. I just worked and worked <laughs> and worked, which is not, in some ways it's brilliant that I had the opportunity to, to do that. And so yes. many writers would love to have to be able to do that. On the other hand, you can lose perspective if you're working absolutely that intensive. I mean, mm. I think the downtime when you walk around and have a little think and sleep on things is can be very productive. Mm. So having learnt my lesson with that, as, uh, as Silver was going through the editing, I'd started on Trust and now, now I've started on another book, um, even as, as Trust has been prepared to come out. That's it's. I've encountered some of these big name crime authors, and a lot of them produce not just one book a year. If they're yeah. filling up to it, they might do two a year, which I yeah. just I'm just absolutely kind of bedazzled by. I, I can't <laughs> see how anyone could possibly do that. I'm sort of trying to get the discipline together to do one a year. Um, I am, of course, incredibly fortunate in that I now can do it full time. Mm. Um, Back to your question, I tend to write in the mornings um, Mm. and then in the afternoon I'll just do other stuff, but I'm often thinking about the book and as as the book evolves and it kind of captures me more, I still might just limit the writing to a certain amount of time, but the, the thought process kind of steps up a lot. Mm. And then as I'm getting towards the end, there's periods I'm, I'm okay at writing in kind of dribs and drabs. Yeah. But then there are times where I need. So, so I don't reckon I'm anywhere until I've got a first draft done and I'm writing yeah. that in kind of dribs and drabs. But then I'll take it and I'll go somewhere for a week or two weeks and just really get stuck in it, into it intensely to see to, to get my mind around the structure, what's wrong with it, what's mm. right with it, what could be added, what could be taken out, that sort of thing. And then once that's done, because I'm, I am, um, I am a, a somewhat of a pantser more than a plotter, so the first mm. draft can be pretty loose, <laughs> very, right. very loose. But correct me if I'm wrong, what I'm hearing is that for trust, you took a much longer you you had a much longer period to write it compared to silver which was a far more intense experience and um therefore you were able to take your time a little bit more with trust is that right well actually i had a shorter amount of time with trust because oh. 
Scrublands was published in the end of July 2018 and right. Silver was published in October 2019. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit, over, a bit over a year. The thing is that I was just, I, when Scrublands came out, I was just wandering around with my feet off the ground and my head <laughs> in the clouds going and, you know, going to writers' festivals and things like that saying, my God, this is fun. This is good. <laughs> um, so, so because I, as I say, that's the lesson I learned from, from Silver because I didn't get into it straight away. The back end became more intense. Whereas with Trust, I was already sort of working on it as the final edits of Silver were, were being done. Right. So that's the kind of, the kind of lesson I learned. There's some passing reference to um, bushfires, a virus or viruses. Did you purposely add those in because of uh, what's yeah, going so, on in the world? So the timing with COVID is really interesting and I've spoken to a, a couple of other authors about this too. Mm. So I would have been finishing the polished draft, you know, the second, third, fourth draft, whatever it was, mm. the draft to be presented to the publisher about the beginning of February mm. or mid-February. So it was just when COVID was kicking off. So the book is set, if you like, vaguely contemporaneously, you know, mm. around now. It's in Sydney and it's winter. The references to the bushfire smoke were were already there because that had happened, you know, the previous summer. Mm. Um, and then COVID started rolling in as we're doing the edits and I thought, well, can I just ignore it? And I know, mm. and I know some authors have just decided almost like parallel reality sort of thing. Yeah. I was thinking, look, the book's going to come out in October Maybe it's under control by then. Maybe it's it's just gone completely wild. Maybe mm. maybe you know Sydney is in lockdown, not Melbourne. You know all, all that mm. sort of thing. So I thought I'll just shift it forward to a time when the when the virus is in the past. Yeah, uh, which is probably hopefully, you know, fingers crossed. Maybe this time next year, yeah. it, it you know will be through it. There'll be a vaccine and stuff. The other thing there, vaguely too, with the timing is, although the book comes out October here, mm. it won't come out say in the UK until you know next year, and then in in translation, you know, years after that possibly. So that mm. that probably a minor point. It's just that. So in the editing, I just thought, look, I need to acknowledge this has happened, but there's no way I can make it central thing, central because by the time the book comes out, I've got no idea where we'll be. Mm -mm. Um, And so with your, um, the dialogue is really, it really brings the characters to life and really makes, helps you form a very clear picture of the characters. I mean, not just the dialogue, obviously there's great um, descriptions of the characters as well, but the the dialogue in particular is very real to specific characters. Um, Do you, like, what do you do to to observe dialogue or to really hear dialogue? Do you sit around and eavesdrop at bus stops or anything like that? So I was... A journalist for 30 years but mm. a lot of that time I was a television journalist and so you listen you're listening if you're doing say 
TV news. You know, you're listening to Dan Andrews' hour-long press conference (laughs) and you're trying to pick the 20-second grab. So you're listening to how he speaks, what's going to make sense. I did a lot of travelling overseas. I'd come back with hours and hours of interviews and I'd transcribe them. So you pick. Mm. I think I picked up a bit of an ear of how people speak. Dialogue is interesting because people don't speak grammatically. No. They, we start a sentence and we don't know how we're going to finish it. Yeah. We kind of make it up as we go along. We often reiterate things. And if we wrote verbatim how people speak, it would mm. be too long and uh, overstated, overblown. So you're not actually trying to capture how people speak. You're trying to capture the essence of how they speak while keeping the dialogue um, taut and tight and pacey. I actually really like writing dialogue because what I'm doing in my mind is I'm bouncing in in my head from one person's perspective to another. Mm. And often because no, no discussion follows a set plan, right? We start a conversation and then, then off we go. Um, so sometimes I'm writing dialogue and it just takes off in a completely different direction and helps shape where the book's going. Um, mm. I, so I, I actually quite like writing dialogue because it often, um, it, it often uh, advances the story. Mm. You um, mentioned that you're a bit of a pantser and I find it absolutely confounding how crime writers pants, uh, but um, obviously they do and many do. And you've also said that after your first draft, when you get stuck into it, that's when you look at your structural, any structural issues. What kind of structural issues are you looking at? Like on a practical level, do you have a process when you are getting that first draft and going oh that doesn't quite work and you know what I mean the the thing I think a lot of successful writers have is the ability to self-assess self-critique see look at their manuscript and find what's working what's not Um, and hopefully fingers crossed it's something you get better with as you go along so I'll sit down and the first question I guess it does it work and if it's not where where is it lacking or what needs to be taken out um you know pretty much every scene should be there for a purpose mm-hmm. you know it might be a great you know it's the old kill your darling thing I'm actually pr- pretty good at killing them off I I, I with scrublands I reckon I threw out over 200,000 words oh my god really and, and rewrote the end uh, oh. very substantially twice, mm-hmm. inclu- including once after I'd signed all these publishing deals. And, like, and I mean, I mean, throw out the last 50,000 words and, oh or 40,000 words or something, <laughs> which I promised I wouldn't do in silver, but I ended up doing in the edit, actually, 30,000. So I'm very, oh. very happy I haven't done that with trust. So maybe, I, maybe I'm getting better. Mm-hmm. So, but part of it, part of being a, that kind of pants idea and why I'm not, so good at being a plotter you kind of plot something out you start writing Mm. and then you get a better idea oh wouldn't Mm. it be better and a lot of I know crime writers do and and I sort of did this with scrublands is you set up this crime and then you you're going well that works that's very dramatic that's gonna Mm. you know that'd suck me into the story and then think yeah but what happened and who did what and so Mm. 
Uh, and the other thing in my books is usually three or four plot lines, if not more, happening at the same time. Often that kind of um, emotional journey, personal per perspective type story, then the crime or multiple crimes. So um, as I write, I'll get a better idea. So the book will evolve over time. Yeah. Um, so what is next for you? What are you you're working on? Is it uh, a continuation? It's not really. It's not. It doesn't feature Martin and Mandy. That's the idea so far. Um, it's still pretty early stages, but it's set in that same sort of universe. So, so the occasional minor character might pop up here and there, inc including possibly Martin for that for that matter. Mm -hmm. um, the trouble, the trouble with Martin and Mandy is. One of the things I find most satisfying about the stories is that emotional journey. Mm. The trouble is you can, there's a limit to what you can do with that mm. as opposed to, you know, if you've got, if you've got a kind of a, a very removed, dispassionate investigator protagonist, you know, like a, a Poirot or a Miss Marple, mm. well, they're not really personally invested and don't get changed so much about the investigation so you, you, they can just keep rolling on. I'm not sure how long I could do that with um, Martin and Mandy. That said, though, I don't think Trust is going to be the last book they're in. It's just mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try something a bit different. You also have a, um, a subtle way to really evoke a sense of place, like whether that's, as you mentioned, winter in Sydney or... I had to giggle at your, some of your descriptions of winter in Sydney because I'm like, that is so true. Uh, or, you know, the the coastal, like the, the, the town, the, you know, sort of down the south coast and that sort of thing. What do you try to do with your writing to, to, to evoke that sense of place or how do you choose that particular observation when you're describing that place? I... Mm, it's a bit hard to unpack. Uh, I think Give it a go. <laughs> the, the, setting, the setting is important on one level because it helps explain the motivation of the characters, including, you know, any criminal activity. So Scrublands is set in an irrigation town with no water. You know, mm -hmm. Desperate people do desperate things at desperate times. Um, it's also, there's also a kind of a theme there of... Uh, the transgenerational nature of abuse. So that mm. the setting is there in silver, it's a boom town. So that explains people trying to get in on the bottom floor on real estate deals, stuff like that. Sydney is a appropriate setting. It's a rather bleak, wintry, post-COVID uh, mm. city. And the story is about, as I said, about corruption and um, collusion and elites and, and power really. So it's the perfect place. So it helps, um, you know, establish the motivations of characters, but it also kind of feeds back into the way you write and the way you describe things and describe people. So it's almost like you're writing the setting, but then the setting is coming back to you and helping helping you write. So it's almost mm. like a circular thing that that happens. And so... I think setting is can can be not necessarily, but can be very important in in any work of fiction, uh, including crime. 
Mm. Um, did you make those conscious decisions for the setting in relation to the characters or did it just come about organically? Pretty much organically. So, mm. so the settings for Scrublands and Silver were influenced by those non-fiction books that I'd written, mm. which were kind of like travel writing, um, where I'd been to places like Riversend in Scrublands and Port Silver in Silver. Um, so I, th- I had the settings and they helped establish the story. The settings came really... Um, really close to the beginning of, of writing the stories. Mm-hmm. What was the most challenging thing about writing Trust? Um, I, I think writing from Mandy's point of view, mm. um, writing about areas in Sydney where I, because of COVID and lockdown, I couldn't get there to, to really uh, check them out properly, um, although I was able to, I was able to do that. Uh, eventually Mm. Um, and just remembering it's I haven't lived in Sydney for more than 20 years just remembering the the feel of it so I mean I go there all the time it's not like Mm. it's a it's a strange or foreign city Mm. Um, so that they they were challenges and also I think every every book's different so you get better at you, you know I get better at the discipline of writing and time management and Mm. some of the craft skills but even then you know right at the heart of any book is the story and as you begin the journey you're unsure how it's going to turn out particularly as I said if you're like me and you're a bit of a pantser you know the book is going to evolve it's going to change that the story is and you're kind of (laughs) sort of hanging on and hoping it's going to all tie together and work in the end Mm-mm. And what was the most rewarding thing about writing Trust? Oh, that I thought by the end it did work. Oh, um, good. <laughs> it does. And, and, well, that's and, handy. And it is, it is different to Scrublands and Silver. The structure's different. The style's different. It's a bit, there's a bit more action in it. It's a little bit more like a thriller. I think mm. it's, it's also pacier and it's, that's happened because you've got the alternating points of view. You can't tell a whole day from Martin's point of view and then go back and start in the morning with Mandy. I mean, mm. it would be possible, but it's better if events are, are all kind of happening around the same time. Yeah. That means the chapters are shorter. That also, which in retrospect, I can see that, but I wasn't thinking of that when I started writing it. Um, and when I decided to do the alternating points of view. So I'm, I'm glad that I've written something that hopefully people who like Scrublands and Silver will also enjoy, and yet I'm not just writing the same book again, which, mm. which I think can be, can be a trap, particularly people who are writing genre fiction, who are writing crime or romance or historical or, or whatever, that they get a book that works and then they just try and replicate it. I, you know, I'm... I don't really want to do that if I can sort of change it up a bit without alienating readers. You know, that's a good thing. So so that, those all those things put together, I'm kind of happy, very happy with trust and the way it's worked out. And finally, what would your what are your top three tips for aspiring writers who hope to have their books, their fiction books published one day? Oh. 
I knew you were going to ask this because I've listened to the podcast, but I forgot <laughs> all about it. Um, look, uh, enjoy it. Have a bit of fun with it. Um, two, what I said before, um, it's really about the manuscript. It's not about you. It's not about what people think about you. And it's not about whether you have the talent or anything like that. Just put your energy and your focus into into the work itself. Just try and make the work good and good from your perspective. If, if your sensibilities are very literary, then what's going to be good for you is going to be a very literary book. You know, if, if, if you're into this kind of sort of pulp fiction, well, that's fine. Just concentrate on the manuscript. Don't worry about that. And the third thing I go back to is once you finish something, move on. Start writing your next thing. Uh, because hanging around waiting to see if you get published or, you know, if your short story has been shortlisted for a prize or something, that's kind of dead time. And also if if it ends up not being published or being shortlisted or something, instead of being devastated, you've already moved on and you're thinking, oh, yeah, well, fine, but wait till you see this one. Great advice. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Chris. Thanks, Valerie. All right, there you go, Chris Hammer. You know, I've read both of them. I haven't read that one yet, but I read the first two and oh, yes. uh, very much enjoyed them. I thought his yes. first one, uh, in particular, Scrublands, was great. I think we talked about it at the time. It was one of those books that um, it was just, it was like, it was like at a certain pace all the way through and then it really ramped up at the end. It became like a movie blockbuster towards the mm. end. Um, but, yeah, he's, you know, it was a really intriguing premise. I thought it was a brilliant premise. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure it'll, I, I haven't read it yet, but I'm sure it'll be great. And, of course, we have to give him a massive shout-out because he gave us a massive shout-out yes. in the Sydney Morning Herald um, as to what he was listening to, um, you know, at the time. And um, we were I was quite, quite chuffed to see That's us there right. keeping such excellent company. That's right. He mentioned his uh, the podcasts he was listening to and there was So You Want to Be a Writer. Fantastic. So Look thank you, us. Chris, for that. Yes. All right. We're almost at the end of this week's episode. What are you doing in the coming week, Al? Oh, just, you know, more Al stuff. Just <laughs> generally Al stuff. Oh, you know what I am doing is um, I'm doing my very first um, ever, I'm the tutor for the teen writing, um, creative writing program with the Australian Writers' Centre. Oh, yes. I haven't done this one before and uh, it's proving very interesting. I'm um, quite excited about it. So, yeah. So They're that's, so talented. My f- They're so I talented, know. the like, teenagers I, who are doing this course. Well, even the kids who do my Kids for Creative Writing Quest, yeah. you know, that's like aimed at 9 to 14-year-olds. And, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, just every once in a while one comes through and I go, did your mum write this for you? (laughs) It's so so sophisticated. It's just like, wow, you know, I can't believe how incredibly, um, you know, clever and intuitive some of these kids are. It's it's amazing. Anyway, so that's what I'm doing. What about you? What are you up to? I am doing a lot of reading. I will be reading Sarah Edwin Dovey's book, the one that Mm. is uh, the giveaway because that's next on my list. I'm Mm. hoping to move on from Twinkle Twinkle to Ode to Joy. That's my next Oh, Ode to Joy. That was what, you know, it's really interesting (laughs) because um, my youngest son did recorder lessons as they do as part and so he learned to play Twinkle Twinkle and then Ode to Joy on the recorder and I have to say sincerely hope. I hope your cello version is better than that. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> all right, where do we find you on? Where do we find you online, Al? 
You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you'll find me on Instagram and Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Of course, you'll find all of the show notes over at SoYouWantToBeAWriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.